Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Scott here. We have now passed the unofficial start of summer since Memorial Day weekend is behind us. Ahead of us this month is the official first day of summer, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Known as the summer solstice, the date is June 20th. For those watching the sun set or rise, this represents a date when the sun rises and sets the farthest north along the eastern and western horizons, respectively. That means that the sun takes the longest amount of time to cross the sky, giving the longest amount of daylight of the year. And since the sun is most directly overhead, it can warm the earth better for that longer time. Weather response being as it is, we experience warmer weather, on average, over the next few months compared to the previous three. With a greater amount of daylight, that means less darkness. And it means it does not get dark until later in the evening. For those of us that like to view the stars and planets, this can be a bit of a downer. A longer wait until darkness coupled with the shorter time to observe. Still, there are things to see, so I wander out in the warmer evening to see what is out there. To catch a planet here at the beginning of the month, I am going to need a clear western horizon. At 9.30 in the evening, not much is visible, but right above the western horizon, one might glimpse the planet Venus. And by just above, I mean that. Though the brightest of the naked eye planets, it lies close enough to the horizon that any trees in that direction may actually hide it. So moving to where there is a very flat horizon, perhaps suppressed by climbing a bit of a hill, may yield success. The other planet visible in the west is the planet Mars. Mars continues to linger in our evening skies, but it is a dimmer version of itself from last autumn. Back then we were closer to it, and thus it appeared brighter in the sky. But we have moved well ahead of it in our faster orbit around the sun, almost as if we're looking at it over our shoulder. Mars lines itself up a bit with a couple of stars of about the same brightness, Castor and Pollux, just peeking out of late twilight. The three form nearly a straight line in early June. By the time the moon sweeps by Mars the nights of the 12th and 13th, that straight line is broken. The 13th finds the moon just above Mars, which may make for a pretty evening scene. As darkness comes on, some patterns I have mentioned in previous broadcasts the last few months begin to appear. Leo the Lion has worked its way over to the southwestern sky. Its brightest star, Regulus, marks the heart of the lion. Marking the end of the handle of a sickle-shaped group of stars, it helps mark the front half of the lion, its head and chest. East of Regulus is a right triangle of stars, that marks the hindquarters of the lion. Above the head of Leo is the familiar Big Dipper. Four stars mark its bowl, three more its crooked handle. The back two stars of the bowl can point to Regulus. Start with the star closest to the handle and travel southward through the second back star of the bowl. That line will pass near Regulus. 
The handle of the Big Dipper helps to find two more stars in two more constellations. Follow the curve in an arcing pattern to the star Arcturus in Boatiza Herdsman. One arcs to Arcturus. And continuing that curve brings me to Spica, that is, speed on to Spica, the brightest star in Virgo the Maiden. The three stars, Regulus, Arcturus, and Spica, form a bit of an isosceles triangle under the Big Dipper. Though these three do form a triangle, the triangle most noted in summer skies is called the Summer Triangle. It is made of three bright stars found in three different constellations. It begins to clear the eastern horizon by about 10.30, depending on the flatness of the horizon. Vega is the brightest of the three and will be highest in the east. It is the brightest star in the small rectangle-shaped constellation known as Lyra the Harp. East of Vega is Deneb which should also have cleared the horizon by that time. It is the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. A line of four stars running parallel to the horizon at this time of the year extending south of Deneb marked the body of the swan, with Deneb marking its tail. A pair of stars above and below that line marked the outstretched wing. The third star is Altair in Aquila the Eagle. It rises last of the three, and again will need a pretty flat horizon to initially find it at 10.30 at night. The stars that make up the eagle are a bit dim and may need a star map to discover. Of course, the best-known alignment in the Big Dipper involves the front two stars in its bowl. This pair is collectively called the Pointer Stars and are used to point to the North Star, Polaris. A line starting from the bottom star extending to the top and then further extended about five to six times that separation will reach Polaris. Finding Polaris means finding the direction north and thus determining the directions of east, south, and west from your location. Polaris marks the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. In the early skies of June, the Little Dipper is actually balanced on its handle tip. Under dark skies, Two more stars can be seen above Polaris finishing the handle, while four stars making a rectangle beyond the handle mark the bowl. The curve of the handle and bowl extend in the direction of the bowl of the Big Dipper. Early morning risers may have a treat, weather permitting, but I urge extreme caution before I mention it. Damage to one's eyes can be possible without proper care, so be warned. On June 10th, the sun rises in Louisville about 6.19 a.m. There may be a bit of a black nip taken out of the rising sun. That would be a small part of the moon. This is a partial eclipse for us, an annular eclipse for those living farther north, well up into Canada, for example. So this is not like the total solar eclipse we saw several years ago. Pinhole projection, or if you still have the eclipse glasses from that earlier eclipse, are the safest ways to view this as the most of the sun will not be blocked, making it essentially as bright as normal. Not safe to look at with one's naked eyes. So, a cautious treat for the early risers on June 10th at sunrise. So the skies of June become almost planetless for the most part as darkness comes, but there are more than a few constellations to hunt for. Each of these have their own stories to tell, stories that would be fun to recount while sitting outside under warm summer skies.
Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Herman Ponser will join us to discuss burn. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, weight loss, it's all about burning calories and eating right, right? Well, joining us today to discuss new research in this field is Dr. Herman Ponser. Dr. Ponser is an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University and associate research professor of global health at the Duke Global Health Institute. He's an internationally recognized researcher in human energetics and evolution with over two decades of research in the field and laboratory. He's conducted groundbreaking studies, including fieldwork with the Hadza hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania. He has penned the new book, Burn, New Research Blows the Lid Off How We Really Burn Calories, Stay Healthy, and Lose Weight. Dr. Ponser, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. So glad to be here. Well, it's a thought-provoking book you've written here, Burn, in which you talk about some of the research you've done that how we burn our calories. I'm curious how you became interested in this topic. Yeah, well, so I'm trained as an anthropologist. You know, I'm interested in human evolution and how our evolutionary past shapes the way our bodies work today, especially in these kind of weird environments that we've built for ourselves. And so energy expenditure is just at the core of any species' uh, life, any species' biology, because turning energy into kids, that's the name of the game in evolution. And so to understand any species, we have to understand how it burns its calories. And as somebody who's interested in us, uh, I want to know how humans burn our calories. But humans haven't been living in cities and getting our food at the supermarket for very, very long. That's a really recent phenomenon. We're a hunting and gathering species. You know, humans have been hunting and gathering since before we were homo sapiens. And so we wanted to understand specifically, not just how we burn our calories, but how we burn our calories in a hunting and gathering lifestyle. And so a couple of collaborators and I went over to work with the Hadza hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania. That They're modern folks just like us, but they hold on to these old traditions that they hunt and gather. And so they're a great way to ask the question, how do we burn calories in a hunting and gathering lifestyle? And what was cool, they're incredibly physically active, you can imagine, 19,000 steps a day for men, for example, as they go out and hunt zebra and giraffe and everything else. And women also really active getting wild foods. But even though they get more activity in a day than most of us get in a week, what we found, surprisingly, was that they burn the same number of calories as we do here in the sedentary West. Just sitting around, you're burning the same amount as these guys that are just hunting and gathering all day. I mean, how's that possible? Yeah, well, that's what we wondered. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, if you're a good scientist, the first thing you think is, well, gosh, maybe we're wrong. So we went and checked to see if other populations were the same. Active populations had also didn't burn more calories. And sure enough, you look across human populations, even you look within a human population, more active people are not necessarily burning more calories. It seems like our bodies are built and evolved to burn a sort of a set number of calories every day. Then the next question is, well, how in the heck are we doing it? And the answer seems to be that our bodies adjust to our activity levels. We, we spend a little bit less on all the other stuff we're burning calories on every day to make room for all this physical activity if we adopt a really physically active lifestyle. Uh, energy budget that the body has and it can't expend any more than that? 
That's right. I mean, you know, there's maybe a little bit of wiggle room on there, but basically in the same way that our bodies try to maintain a, a fairly constant body temperature. You might get a little bit up or a little bit down, but your, your body's trying to keep you at a certain body temperature. Your body's trying to keep you at a certain blood glucose level, right? There's a lot of homeostasis that goes on in the body where your body's trying to keep you kind of in a narrow range of different measures. And energy expenditure seems to be one of those measures, which we, we didn't realize that before. That was kind of a big surprise. And it really changes the way we think about how our bodies work and how our bodies work within this fixed energy budget. So, so what are the big costs for the body then? What parts of our body require the most energy? This gets to sort of how we're, we're sort of miseducated, I think, about how our bodies burn calories. If you, if you look at the way we, people usually talk about energy expenditure, they usually focus completely on exercise, right? But actually, even if you're active, most of the calories you burn every day are not burned by your muscles. They're not burned by physical activity or exercise. Most of the calories you burn every day are spent on things like your brain and your liver and your digestive system and your immune system and, and all those you know, various systems working beneath the surface. You know, we're not aware of them, but they're keeping us alive, right? I mean, for example, you and I sitting here having this conversation, every third or fourth breath we take in is the oxygen just to feed your brain, right? Your brain is incredibly expensive. Your brain, your brain runs a 5K every day. It burns about 300 calories a day, equivalent to running a, a five kilometer run. So there's a lot of energy that we spend on all sorts of things and by sort of adjusting those budgets, we make room for physical activity. If you increase your physical activity, does it take away from some of those basic functions that you need? Well, yeah, it does a little bit. So that sounds like a scary thing, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have as much brain power or something like that. It doesn't work like that. So most of that readjustment is really good for you. If you look at people who are really physically active, they have lower inflammation levels. Well, what's inflammation? Inflammation is your immune system sort of overreacting, right? Being constantly active when it doesn't need to be. Stress reactivity, so your cortisol levels, your epinephrine levels, those are higher and they jump higher in response to stress if you're not an exerciser. And so exercise seems to help us cut down on things that we really don't need to be doing anyway, like inflammation, stress reactivity. It seems to keep your hormone levels uh, in check, your, your reproductive hormone levels kind of in a healthy place. And so, you know, we think this is a big reason that exercise is so, so good for you. So, you know, it's funny when we first came back with the Hadza results and we say, Hey guys, look, it looks like physical activity isn't really pushing our energy expenditure around very much. People said, Oh, well then what's the point of exercise? I guess you don't have to exercise anymore. And we said, no, 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 that, that, that's not it at all. Exercise is really, really good for you. And actually part of the reason it's good for you, it seems, is all that readjustment that it does. If it's not the expenditure side, then it must be the intakes for people who are concerned about their weight. And that's right. Every calorie that you carry in your fat or the rest of your body, for that matter, is a calorie of food that you ate at some point. And so, you know, your weight is all about how many calories you ate versus how many calories you burned off. And what our research is showing, and I, I should say, this isn't just our work, you know, this isn't just our lab showing this kind of stuff. Other people are showing this kind of thing too. It's really hard to budge the calories that you burn off every day. And so that means that if you want to keep, you know, that, that balance between energy you bring in and energy you burn off, you really have to focus on the energy intake side. In other words, the calories you're eating, that's where you're going to see all the movement in terms of energy balance and, and weight change and weight maintenance. Is there some variation among individuals in terms of their energy needs? Is there a way to figure out, I mean, how much your body actually needs so that you can gauge how much to eat? Yeah. So really the only way to do that successfully 
uh, unless you have you know the, 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 all the tools of a modern metabolic laboratory at your disposal, the, the best way to keep track of calories in and out is really your bathroom scale. Here's the thing, and this is one of the reasons I think people get so frustrated trying to keep track of calories and why people say things like, oh, calories don't even matter. Well, okay, two things. One is it's really hard to keep track of the calories you burn off because as we just talked about, you know, your body's making all these adjustments when you can't even tell. To, you know, so you think that you're burning more calories because you, you're exercising more, but actually your body adjusts and makes it hard to tell and keep track of energy expended. It's also really hard to keep track of the calories that you eat. So we know from lots of work in, in different countries and populations, people are terrible at keeping track of how many calories they eat. It's just, uh, you know, some kind of blind spot in our human psyche, our ability to kind of keep track of, of the food we eat. And so at the end of the day, if you start trying to count calories in and out, you'll, you'll find yourself really frustrated because it's actually really hard. And add on top of that, the fact that some people burn more calories than others. So, you know, you might burn 3000 calories, I might burn 2800 calories. And so what works for you might not work for me, even though we're the same, you know, size and shape and age and all that stuff. It's really just easiest thing to, is just to keep track of the, uh, the bathroom scale and let that be your guide as to where you're at in terms of energy balance. Of course, right now, being a little bit more sedentary, a lot of weight gain going on, people might attribute that just to being at home and sedentary, but maybe it's just being around all this food all the time and just not paying attention to increased intake. Yeah, you know, like, hey, pandemic fatigue is real, stress, it, eating, and mood, all those things affect your, your how much you eat. And so, yeah, I, I suspect that if people have gained weight with the quarantine, with, with COVID, probably diet's the bigger factor here than, than the exercise. Although, you know, again, well, that exercise is really good for you. You still should be doing that too, but, but probably the culprit, if you had to point your finger towards one thing, is the diet. What about resting metabolic rate? Is that a factor in this energy redistribution? I mean, you know, there's so many benefits of exercise. Part of it is this energy redistribution, you know, away from inflammation, for example. Part of it is that it keeps your heart healthy. It helps you, helps you grow new brain cells. It helps you keep sharp as you age. And I mean, there's so many good things about exercise. Even if you can, even if you did bump your energy expenditure up a bit with exercise, and some people are able to get you know a few more calories a day from exercise, their bodies don't adjust completely back. Well, you would think then that that would help those people stay trim, and actually, it it really doesn't. So, if you look at people who have you know a, fa a fast metabolism, they burn more calories than average for their size and shape and all that stuff. And you look at people who burn fewer calories than you'd expect for their size and shape and everything. The people who burn more calories aren't actually protected against weight gain any more than the people who burn fewer, right? And that's because the main organ in your body that determines your, your relationship to food and, and your weight ultimately is your brain, right? So your brain does a really good job at matching the calories in uh, that you eat with your, in your diet to the calories that your body burns off. It does a, a remarkably good job at that. It can do that a good job at matching calories in to calories out at a high level or at a low level, right? So people who are at a, have a high or fast metabolism or a slow metabolism are equally good at matching. What gets you into trouble is when you start eating foods that, that your, your brain kind of pushes you to overconsume, and, and usually those are sort of the ultra-processed foods and that kind of thing. So that's usually the problem for weight gain more than, oh, I have a fast metabolism or a slow metabolism.
If you look across the globe, compared diets, you expect those diets which are lower caloric and the, the people there then would have less weight. Yeah. So we have a, a great study that came out, actually came out in January. So it was sort of coming out as the book was getting ready to publish too. My former postdoc, Sam Erlocker, who is at, at Baylor University now, he did this study with uh, children in the Schwar population in Ecuador. And uh, the Schwar, these really remote, kind of, most of them live in a very remote forest setting. But some of the Shuar population live near and in and around small cities in Ecuador. And the population that lives remotely and eats wild, you know, a lot of wild foods, a lot of simple farmed foods, those kids have no issues with body fat or obesity, as you can imagine. The kids that live in the cities, this is the same population, right? So the genetics are the same and you know, a lot of the culture is the same. And actually, we measured it. The energy expenditure is the same every day. But the access to food just are different. And the kids in the cities have access to all the processed, sugary drinks and greasy foods and everything else that, you know, here we in the U.S. Are, have access to as well. And it's the, those kids in, around the cities that are starting to put on more fat, starting to get run into potential issues with metabolic disease. Things like diabetes are kind of on that trajectory more so than the kids in the villages. And it's, it's the diet, man. It's the diet, you know. Do you see the same set energy expenditure across animals? Yeah. So th this is a really one of the really cool things. So one of the things we did when we saw the Hadza results was, like I said, we checked across populations. So populations like the Schwar that are really physically active. And it turns out, you know, like, like the Hadza, same energy expenditures as, as folks in industrialized countries. But then we also decided to look across species. And so my lab has measured energy expenditures in different primate species, for example, in apes and other in monkeys and other non-human primates. And we, so we have data from these primates in zoo settings where we work. People have also measured energy expenditures with some of these same species in the wild. And sure enough, uh, populations in the zoo, which are obviously not, very, not particularly active, are, have the same energy expenditures for their body size as the primates in the wild that are much more physically active. Laboratory studies of mice, for example, this is another thing. If you, if you have a mouse, a bunch of mice, and, and you, you don't let them have a wheel for a while, so you take the wheel, you lock the wheel in their uh, little mouse cages for about a week, and they kind of get used to that. And then you unlock the wheels, and you let them be as active as they want to be. Over time, they'll get more and more and more physically active. And so you can measure total energy expenditure when they're completely sedentary, no wheel, and then when they get more and more and more active every day on the wheel. And the daily energy expenditures are the same across the entire experiment, even though the activity levels are totally varying. The main point is just to keep the organism alive, and that's where you need to put bullshit yeah. energy in, right? That's right. I mean, we're evolved. We're not evolved to look good in a, in a bathing suit, right? <laughs> that's not the point. Uh, you're evolved to survive and reproduce, and so your body is very careful and crafty about how it brings energy in, how it matches that to how many calories you burn off, uh, how it responds to lifestyle, you know, so we, we kind of think that we're in the driver's seat and that we can ramp our metabolism up or you know, we're, we're sold all these magical projects that will boost our metabolism. None of that stuff works very well because, in truth, we're not in, in, in control of our metabolism just like we think we are. They're responding to our changes in lifestyle. Do you think these things can be changed to manipulate a bit of our energy expenditure? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's it's always fun to, to speculate what the future would hold. I'll say this, you know. The genes that seem to be related to obesity, you know, if you have this variant or that variant of a gene, it makes you more or less likely to develop obesity. All the genes, and there's hundreds of them that we found associated with, with obesity, are active in their brain. 
And so, you know, the suggestion then is that if you were going to kind of go in and manipulate the system, you know, a little genetic engineering, which I'm not, I'm not promoting, but if, if that's what, if that was your plan of attack, you'd be really trying to affect those systems in the brain. How dangerous that would be? Gosh, I don't know. Messing with the brain. But that, I think that's where you'd have to try to look. I'm curious, maybe just to close, if you have some final words regarding, you know, your findings, the book, and what do you like people to take home from all this? Yeah, well, you know, I wrote the book for two reasons. One is I just want people to understand how their bodies work. You know, I mean, we have all these health crises in in the U.S., a lot of them uh, related to our relationship with food and exercise and how our bodies burn calories. And I think people just need to know, first of all, how things really work. So I, I hope they get that from it. The other thing is, it was really fun to do all this work, be able to travel and see all these different populations and cultures and work with amazing people and hunter gatherers in northern Tanzania or working with non-human apes, you know, in, in zoos or in the wild. And that was just all a lot of fun. And, and so I, I hope people also kind of take home some of the joy and, and the fun of doing this kind of research as well. And, you know, in terms of how you put this stuff into action in your own life, get outside, be active and, and try to eat foods that aren't built in a lab. Yeah, I think those are <laughs> pretty easy action items we can all start to, to do better with in our own lives. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Herman Ponser. He is the author of the new book, Burn. New research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, lose weight, and stay healthy. Dr. Ponser, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>